0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or Product Disclosure Statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, where I'm joined by Dr. Anirban Mahanty, and we're talking how to know when to sell. We talk about some of the recent news in the market, such as China's Evergrande collapse. We're talking about tapering and what that means, Facebook's CTO leaving, if interest rates will rise and what that means, and a whole host of other things. We conducted this interview live on the RASC YouTube page, where we also took some comments and some points of view from the audience. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast.
1: How are
2: you going? How has your last week been? Oh, last week has been great. Um, a bit crazy, uh, you know, because we work on our uh, recommendations, you know, that are going to go live October one. So a bit crazy doing presentations, you know, or stock pitches as we call it, and uh, then you know working on the write ups. Uh, before that, doing the research <laughs> to you know make, make you know um, make sure that you know you're picking the right ones. So it's been a fun, busy week, but mm-hmm. yeah. Nothing, nothing special, you know. We're in lockdown, like you, so there's nothing much happening otherwise that I can comment on or report on. Um, how about you?
1: We've had a bunch of really interesting interviews. So a few interviews that are coming up on the podcast. Um, I interviewed a, a woman by the name of Tanya De Jong, who is a. Uh, she's founded six businesses and three charities, and she's got this really interesting backstory. And she's focused on mental health, which is kind of prescient. And um it's just been really interesting and good to chat to to her, to her because she has insights she's actually a qualified lawyer and was a semi pro tennis player and and she's a, an opera singer so she's just just a bizarre and wonderful person um all in one and it's it's just fascinating so I've um, just been chatting with really interesting people like that I had a few discussions with CEOs and that type of thing this week um just small cap CEOs so we're just working through them I don't know I find that Sometimes interviews with CEOs and management teams, you can come away with less conviction. Um, sometimes you can come away with a lot more, and it's really hard to anticipate in advance. I don't know if you ever have yeah. that kind of takeaway. If it's been so a when I used or- to,
2: when I used to do small caps or um, well, small caps, Aussie small caps, I used to do a lot of interviews and things like that. One of the things that I found here, here's the thing, right? If a CEO is a really good salesperson, you come across really impressed in that meeting, right? They'll basically be able, they should be able to sell you anything. (laughs) And in which case, how do you um, make a judgment out of it, right? So my take always with the CEO meetings was one of the primary reasons I wanted a CEO meeting uh, or CEO or CFO or someone uh, to to meet with me is to basically just fill my holes in understanding the business. And this is because many, unless you're in an IPO, recent IPO here in on the ASX, right? You don't really have a report that describes what the business is. So you're kind of having to make out the business yeah. by looking at some past transcripts or going to the conference calls, but you still don't get a good, good picture. So after you've done your research, I figured that the best way to understand the business was from the horse's mouth. <laughs> And uh, and that really, really kind of helped. But yes, I was always circumspect of the fact that, well, you know, they're, if they're the best salesperson, the best salesperson is on the job, then they're going to sell you the, the company. So,
1: <laughs> do you did did you ever come into or have you ever gone into an, a meeting an interview with the CEO very like with a lot of conviction and then come away from that thing no this is just a deal breaker that my kind of gut feel was enough to try and completely just 180 that investment I did?
2: Um, No. So, and that has not happened to me largely because I'm a very um, skeptical person
1: (laughs) to start off with, right? So
2: I, uh, you know, it actually, you know, so maybe if you are like what, if you are at that position maybe you're more open minded you know so i'm saying what the, the position you took is more open minded because i come i will start off being very skeptical and then if a, if a great salesperson actually gives me a good sales pitch i'll actually probably be convinced that hey this is a good idea so you know it depends on where you start and it, it's maybe being ultra positive is probably a good place to start than being you know skeptical i've always been skeptical um the other thing I found was, is even if you look at a person's track record, right? I mean, that's no, I mean, if somebody was, has a successful track record of business, unless they've done it multiple number of times, really doesn't, you know, if they've been successful in the past, doesn't mean they're going to be successful again, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one thing worked out doesn't mean that the second one is going to work out. Yes, if they have been like, you know, they're like a... They're like a Bevan Slattery, then, you know, they maybe have some magic, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, that's a different all, uh, matter altogether, right? You know, so serial. So serial entrepreneur is different, but it's very difficult to make out otherwise. I don't, I, yeah, I found it good for plugging holes.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a, it's as a fact find, it's also interesting. But I feel like, you, you, like as you said, you do need to have your um, wits about you before you go in. Because if you don't, then they could just pull the wool over your eyes. So I, 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 I'm the type of person that likes to... I don't think you can... Personally, I don't think you can truly understand a business um, as well as you would absolutely want to before you buy. I find that you often just discover things over time. And um, so repeated meetings and... Or just not even meetings, just hearing and what they have to say, watching their webinars and whatever, seeing their consistency is actually... Um, a valid way to to kind of gauge their track record if they are, as you say, new. Um, Yeah, yeah, I often find it it really interesting when we talk about like successful CEOs and managers because oftentimes we parade the person that is super successful with one idea. And they, you know, it could, a lot of that is, I'd say a lot of it is circumstance. Um, And so, or it can be circumstance for the right way to frame it. So sometimes, you know, that's going to happen. And we can't pay too much attention to any one kind of strategy or kind of vision roadmap um, that repeated success is, is, is really important. And like Bevan Slattery's had that, right? So he's got like Superloop, loop yeah. next DC, of mega all that stuff. Like it's, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, it's really hard and it's, it's all in adjacent areas, but I mean, it's really different things, right? So super loop megaport, as you said, next DC, they're all kind of networking sort of things, but they're not, Necessarily the same thing, right? Mm. Um, and then, in, and then, Slattery's also got investments in other areas that he makes, right? And what we need to remember there is that I guess what might look like a big position in a small company is probably peanuts <laughs> uh, for for Mr. Slattery, because I mean, you know, he can afford to, you know, put his money in multiple bets, which is again, something very interesting so yeah but yeah i admire making a few thousand he's
1: making maybe a few million so
2: yeah yeah. Yeah, i admire i I mean slattery is really like the uh, sort of the you know the elon musk equivalent in australia right i mean there are very few people who have done that many number of gigs uh in different areas so yeah Mm. i admire him
1: hey um before we get to the formal topics which are going to include things like when when we sell why we sell talking about some topical things like um tapering and what have you, um, and also how to identify, you know, winners in growth industries. Um, People will probably see that you've got a T-shirt on there that looks interesting. And you were telling me today that it's a very special day. And I'm I'm bringing this up because you brought up (laughs) Elon Musk.
2: Oh, it's a special day because, you know, this is uh, my uh, Cybertruck T-shirt. I have a thing. I have to buy something from Tesla Every quarter, so you know, uh, because I didn't make a big purchase this, you know, this quarter, uh, and I didn't buy a buy a Powerball or something. So I bought a T-shirt from them. Um, so I put it on actually today for for our uh, for our um, uh, podcast recording, and and uh, those people who know, so this is a shout out to Tom Richardson. He used to work with me, um, and now he's a reporter at um, AFR, so Australian Financial Review. Um, he made me a coffee mug. Which, uh, which says which basically has got an Elon Musk tweet on it which says i am considering taking Tesla private at 420 funding secure this is the famous funding secure tweet yeah. he made you know that <laughs> was really funny that he made it for made this uh, And I, I regularly have coffee in this because I am so happy that the company did not go <laughs> private at 420 this is before the split <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I have coffee on this and I just you know laugh at my good fortune and and uh, and that you know I enjoy and I remember, Tom, every time I have this, um, yeah, I was happy because, uh, you know, I had this, I had these two Elon Musk things on me to start. And then I got this email that said my Starlink uh, can be shipped within three days. Uh, or if mm-hmm. I want it sooner, then I can pay for it now, which I just did before we started recording. And I'm excited about that because, you know, um, my internet here is really horrible because, um, you know, the the NBN got botched up. Uh, to the point where basically it is, um, you know, it's fiber to the curb. And then from the curb, it basically depends on what sort of copper wire you've got. I can't get more than 20 Mbps here. So the NBN site would suggest that I can get 100 Mbps, but I can't. Mm. And that's the download. Uh, I can get maximum maybe 25. And I actually pay, you know, I actually can maximum get 28. And to get the privilege of 28, I actually pay for 60. So I pay the 60 slab, or whatever, the 50 slab, so that I can eke out a little bit more. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the reason I'm excited about, uh, about Starlink is that potentially I would be able to get maybe you know 100, 200 uh, you know, as downloads. And that should only increase over time as they put more satellites up. And mm. I should be able to get maybe 50, 60 as upload. That changes the game for, if you're doing gaming, it'll change the game for gaming. Uh, but it'll change the game for many of my you know sloppy internet connection issues that I have. You know, and eventually maybe I can disconnect. Can uh, say bye bye to my NBN connection. So uh, um, yeah, so you know, a little trial for uh, for a few months, and maybe bye bye NBN.
1: Mm-hmm. So just for those people who don't know, Starlink uh, satellites um, put in put into space that some people can see. They say. From with their naked eye just by looking up at the stars. And as someone who gazes at the stars and I have my telescope right here beside me, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because they've had to make changes around how kind of the light reflects off the satellites as they pass by. But I've also put down a deposit because I think the way that you get a Starlink uh, kind of router is that you have to pay, well, ask you to pay an upfront deposit and then they say when it's available in your area, then you can pay the full freight, right? Is that how it works? Because that's what I've done. I think I've paid $130 or something. That's right. Yeah. And um
2: Yeah, you pay deposit. And yeah, yeah. And then you see right now I'm getting my internet connection is unstable. <laughs> <laughs> ironic. Yeah. So uh, ironic. and uh, I can see on Twitter that people are you know, saying, oh, but in Brisbane we get this much and you know that much. Well, I don't get that much. If I did, I wouldn't order it. I'm not dumb. <laughs> but you yeah. know, my internet connection is literally unstable at the very moment. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you can get high-speed NBN if you're in, in a proper metro, where metro is probably, you know, inner city. I am um, not really in inner city. I mean, you know, near the Cam- Camden area, which is like 60, 70 kilometers from the city. We definitely don't get, in my previous place in Campbelltown, too, I did not get. I could hardly get 30 Mbps. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, right. I am... Um- I get reasonable internet, but I figured this is one of these things where as investors I like to just keep tabs on what's going on, and I think if I can get it and try it out, see how it see how it impacts my life, maybe then I can use that as kind of like a, an inference of what it could be doing for other people and other businesses, not even here in Australia, but around the world. And so for me it's kind of like a low-cost test of if, you know, Starlink is actually a valid way of getting internet a reliable, like load ping, um, all those things, then why wouldn't more people do that and switch away from other devices? And, and what does that bring for, for certain companies and opportunities in that respect? So really interesting. I'm keen to know how it goes, so be sure to let me know. In terms of uh, news topics today, mate, one of the things that you brought up um, before we hit record is um, tapering might happen sooner than people think. So maybe you can just kind of back this out
2: a bit for us. Yeah, so, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has a you know bunch of Federal Reserve governors, so they're the regional governors that you know make up the Federal Reserve, and they, they all um, make what's called a dot plot, which basically is a prediction of where they think the interest rate is going to be in the future. And it looks like what's happening is that, you know, there's now anticipation that some number of people, at least half of them probably, Think that there's going to be an increase later in uh, in 2022, right? Which is a little bit earlier than I guess anticipated. So I think the the what I think the Federal Reserve basically is saying is that the recovery has happened, and according to uh, Powell, the job recovery has also happened. While it's not as low as it was pre pandemic, they think that the job recovery has mostly played out. And now there's inflation, which is also running hotter than they had expected, but they expect it to cool down. Uh, which means that it is now uh, time to start taking away that punch bowl. Uh, so nothing unexpected here, but I think you know a little bit of movement, you know, towards. So I, I guess in my my only takeaway was at the during when a crisis is unfolding, even and these are like predictions, right? And their predictions are just as good as my predictions or your predictions, right? <laughs> so because you know nobody's really good are making predictions, but when people are making predictions at the depths of despair, then you tend to be pessimistic, right? And when you're out of the depths of despair, you tend to be optimistic and reflected in what are thinking about the interest rates, right? Should be Or you should have been in the past. So what has happened is basically people were thinking interest rates are not going to be increased until like 2023. Now they're thinking 2022, right? So it's the optimism that's coming back into play. Um, so it does, what does it mean? I think there's a couple of things here to keep an eye on. If The, the trajectory of the interest rate is really what matters, right? Whether the interest rate is 0.5% or really 1%, does it really matter? Probably not, right? But it would matter if it starts being 3% or 4%, right? And um, that's something to keep an eye on. That's going to impact um, valuation of growth stocks, especially because a lot of their value is in, in sort of the terminal value, right? And and the interest, the discount rate plays a big role, which is, Indirectly related to the uh, risk-free rate, as decided by the Fed. Uh, now, when I'm saying Fed, you can replace the word Fed with any other uh, reserve bank, which has uh, you know independent. Um, if you've got an independent monetary policy and you've got an independent currency, then you can set your own uh, interest rates and decide sort of you know the level of liquidity in the market. They're also saying that you're going to reduce some of the bond, bond buying and things like that, uh, or start tapering down. So. Um, overall, I think something to keep an eye on, I mean, what what I think surprised me a little bit is that generally when you say that the interest rate is actually going to go up sooner than anticipated, you would think the market would react negatively, the market actually reacted positively. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe the takeaway here is the market loves to have uh, certainty than uncertainty. So, you know, certainty okay, it's going to go up and more people are saying this is good news. Combine that with the fact that the economy is actually doing okay, uh, is good news. Combine that with the fact that you know um, inflation is probably not going to run as hot, maybe in the future, is also good news. Uh, mm. And then there's some, you know, more or less full employment happening is also good news. So there's a lot of good news there um, with some. So that was my take really on it. Nothing special, but I think something to keep an eye on.
1: I think it's a bit of give and take, right? Like, um, interest rates do impact asset valuations. They have for thirty years, I think. That's like been one of the massive drivers of of the stock market, um, even bond prices, obviously. So, um, the Fed. I just reading an article from CNBC. The Fed um, sees GDP rising to five point nine percent this year, and uh, or just five point nine percent, sorry, compared to seven percent, which is what they forecast just a few months ago in twenty two. However, that twenty twenty two they see growth at 3.8% compared to the 3.3% that they previously forecast for. Um, And they also see inflation stronger than the the previous predictions. So I guess just moving ahead of the curve on that. And um, yeah, I mean, we talked about growth stocks being kind of a maybe a potential loser from the compression of that terminal value um, because the the cash flows that we discount long into the future had to be discounted more effectively because the discount rate goes up. Um, but I guess, does it really impact the way you invest in terms of, like, I know people might, might put you in the, the box of growth investor, but does it actually impact you in that way? Like, do you change the process? Or? No,
2: so uh, it, it, I don't really. Like, I mean, I, I do think about valuation. Valuation is sort of the last thing I think about when I'm, at a, when I'm looking at a company. Valuation is my last consideration. It's, like, really bottom, at the bottom of the rung consideration for me because I'm looking at, I want to look at disruptive companies. I want to look at companies that change the game. And when the game is being changed, a lot can happen. So um, I don't really think about valuation until like I'm sort of checkboxed all the other things. Um, the only thing I would say is that, look, let me. this is maybe a more general and maybe I'm veering off topic here. I don't think the market is overly expensive right and that's you know and i don't think it's overly expensive but i'm just saying like if you look at the the big tech then they don't look overly expensive right and there are pockets of the market there are pockets of the market in every market (laughs) which is expensive and one of the things i've found is that sometimes it's useful to look outside those pockets of expensive things right so I give an example. Is Moderna worth whatever $100 billion plus, right? I mean, a good question to ask. It's an innovative question, a company which has brought forward, mm. you know, an innovative drug platform. Is it worth that much, right? And, and there's a, a lot of things baked into it. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, you could make an argument that there are some pockets where things look expensive. You can ask the same question for something like Tesla uh, and say, is it, is it worth that much, right? But sometimes you can look a little bit outside of those obvious boxes uh, and look at other things that people are probably not thinking about. So that that might be something to think about is, are there other sort of ideas that you can look for when you're investing? Um, But yeah, in general, if if I like a company, I don't really care that much about about what the Fed is doing or not doing, because Mm -hmm. those companies are probably gonna be fine, irrespective of the Fed. (laughs)
1: Mm. It was like um, during COVID. I think the, the game plan for a lot of investors during COVID was: if you have companies that have a lot of cash, you know, so their financial leverage really isn't that dire. They're wide, you know, my business is really competitively advantaged. Um, have good aligned management teams, like sensible management teams. That's really all you can you can hope for at the end of the day, because unless you move into um, risk off assets, so you sell positions in order to move to things that benefit from you know interest rate or inflation linked uh, coupons. Um, there's really kind of no reprieve. You could go to term deposits, which would could be a costly decision at the worst possible time. So there are a lot of things about it that basically you know mean that it's probably still the best you're going to get is having good companies in for the long term, at least good companies. Um, in the stock market, uh, in your portfolio, um, another thing that was interesting, just from um, a Fed perspective, is um, the move or the considerations around digital currencies. So, um, there's been a lot of stuff on Twitter yeah. for last week, in fact, too, which is really interesting.
2: Yeah. So, well, I mean, the, the, I mean, they're considering basically, you know, whether or not they should have issue a digital dollar, right? And what I think is interesting about that is, issuing a digital currency is one thing, but you know, is the rails around that digital currency that matter, right? It's when I say rails, what I mean is, you can issue a digital currency, but the digital currency need to needs to propagate <laughs> quickly. There's no advantage uh, otherwise, because I mean, technically we have digital currency. If you think about it, right? So if you've got Apple Pay, if you've got Google Pay, if you've got you know Touch and Go, then well that is digital money movement that's already happening, right? Those, you know, you're not physically moving moving cash. Um, mm-hmm. So, it's to me, it's more of a rails question. If if the infrastructure um, is there to support digital currencies all in, then it'll allow for, you know, quick settlement of funds, uh, almost instantaneous transfer, like, you know, like something like OSCO that we've got here, which allows for instantaneous fund transfer between certain banks if they participate in OSCO. Those sort of things can be very, very useful. Um, to me, it seems like if that happens, well, you know, uh, one of the big things about crypto and other digital currencies is is, is being attacked here, right? Um, you know, if, and potentially, it can be also cross border smooth cross border movement of um, of funds if you have digital sort of assets in that sense. Um, if the rails exist, that's that's what I thought. But, but otherwise, you know. Um, I know that you know it's been talked about here as well in Australia and other places that are talking about going digital so um but reserve banks worldwide tend to be um tend to be thoughtful and deliberate in their movement right so they're not going to go into anything quickly which mm. is that remains a question as to seeing as to when this happens
1: mm. there's been there was a great bloomberg interview um with vitalik Buterin who's the kind of the guy behind Ethereum. Um, and because there's been a lot of moves in this respect lately, like, um, Jack Dorsey from uh, the Twitter and Square fame, um, we've seen PayPal make a move into this. Then um, there are heaps of innovative startups as well that are looking to break this market. So um, it's a really interesting thing. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I am, I've interviewed a lot of pretty high profile um crypto investors and and like and um from my uh, like from my perspective it probably makes sense to have a small allocation of crypto assets if you do think that that is um you know the way of the future and to be honest I think it is too but it's like you said I guess it's the rails right it's the blockchain that underlies it and um one of the things that I took away from that interview with um Buterin was that basically even if PayPal, which own shares in or Square or whoever come out with their own um, version of a crypto asset, it's still kind of held on a ledger that's controlled, like um, a private ledger somewhere. And so, yeah, it might be instant. It might have all of the, the safe, it might have all of the kind of the, the usual features from a consumer perspective in terms of instant transfers and what have you. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's whether or not it's, it's truly trustless. And so if something like the Fed embraces something like this. Um, then that is really a game changer um, because it brings the two worlds closer together. So that's going to be something interesting to watch. Um, I probably would add um, an extra thing on here, which is something that I've been asked about a lot this week, which is basically what's going on in Chinese property development. Um, I've done a few live chats this week and it, you know, they're all asking basically is what's happening in China and Chinese property development market um, something that will boil over into another global financial crisis. And the more I read about this, the more it seems the answer is no, because many of these moves seem to have been kind of set in motion quite a long time ago. And this is an instance of a very kind of lower quality property developer amongst the stack that, um, you know, we're just pulling this kind of this one out as an example of, you know, what could go wrong, but it doesn't seem to be um, the type of thing that can ripple over because it's asset backed and and, and the like. With that, how have you seen this playing out?
2: Yeah, so I don't think this is like another Lehman moment, but you know, maybe I have a slightly different view. So this is this this Evergrande thing. They they're probably the the largest, or the second largest property developer in the world. They're also the most indebted property. I think something like 300, 400 billion or something like that is owed by them. And I think the problem is, uh, it, so this is how these things spiral, right? So these guys build residential properties as an, let's you say as an example, right? So let's say they're building a big tower in Hong Kong and a bunch of people are going to be buying into that tower. So they're going to be paying deposits. Those deposits are then bank guaranteed. So the consumer is taking the loan from the bank the bank is then, you know, giving them the money. That money is then flowing to Evergrande. And now that there's, this doubt, or there was this doubt, I think Evergrande has made a payment, that they couldn't make their coupon payments, which is basically payments on their debt, then that that company basically goes into default. If that company goes into default and it goes bankrupt, then what do you do, right? So if the banks stop lending money, then the consumers don't have the money to pay Evergrande. If Evergrande doesn't have the money coming in from new projects, it actually can't make payments to its suppliers and on its debt. That's the problem they have gotten into. That's the pickle they are in, right? And I think what happened is this basically example case of where basically if you took on too much debt, the only way to further get out of it was to build even more, <laughs> create more properties, create more more work so that you can get more cash flow coming in. But that meant taking on more debt as well. and And... So, can there be ripple effect? So, ripple effect could be that if a bunch of properties stop um, uh, or they do fire sale on some properties, which means they take you know write downs, that write down then flows through to the banks who will have basically a property uh, using the property as guarantee, right? to provide the loans. that happens that can have a ripple effect on on the Chinese market. If the Chinese market, the property market then pulls. Um, um, slows down, that has then, you know, Chinese property market, then, you know, basically it's construction industry, the construction industry's demand goes down, that has an impact on raw materials, which then has a flow effect effect on things like, I mean, I don't know, prices and stuff is are down significantly from their peaks, right? So it there can be peak, but, you know, um, there'll be a bailout or not, maybe, right? People, I think what has happened is the GFC has maybe taught governments a lesson, <laughs> maybe the wrong lesson and to some extent, which is... You don't want it to happen because if it happens, you know, bailing out is better than letting it happen because if it if it happens, then it's worse. But the converse is also true. If everybody knows that they're going to be bailed out, <laughs> then nobody's going to be disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. So then you've got more bailouts to do. Eventually, somebody's going to pay for it, right? So, I mean, I don't know. So, I don't think it's a big deal, but I think it's, it's some deal.
1: Mm-hmm. I think… Um- Yeah, so about $300 billion in property um, with about $220 billion, uh, so $300 billion in debt with $220 billion of um, property basically underlying it. I think one of the key distinctions that I come across, and there was an article that you sent through, but also some other stuff that I was reading, is that there was two key differences. I guess one is that, um, first of all, people have seen this coming because because it has been indebted, it, just, it hasn't got this debt overnight. People have seen this coming. And um, based on what the the Chinese regulation uh, regulators and, and the government are doing is basically trying to increase housing affordability, but also trying to really kind of have strict oversight of what's getting done and where. And so um, it's been very kind of like under the microscope for a long time. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is that, um, you know, during the GFC, basically there was like, contagion and ripple effects and when it's when the price of property in china is um going up because it's in so demand so much demand um the actual value of the assets that they have should shouldn't fall away too too much so in terms of the land it should be pretty you know pretty reliable in terms of its valuation and and what it's actually going to be sold for um, whereas you look at like CDOs and and those types of synthetic products during the GFC, um, there's there's a bit of difference there, in terms of that spreading over and things that were supposedly you know AAA rated are now non investment grade. You know that's a big difference. Um, I mean, who knows what happens from here? But what I will say is that there. You know I was reading some other reports from the likes of Platinum uh, Platinum Asset Management, which I know is is um pretty heavily focused in China. And they're effectively saying that, you know, it's been the case for a while, the governments want to increase housing affordability because they have many kind of bold ambitions for younger people in particular getting into the property market in China. And there's there's even instances where, um, you know, they're trying to develop so much in certain areas that um, new houses, brand new houses um, are selling far below kind of what the equivalent house is already selling across the road and um, or has sold across the road. Uh, because they're just trying to roll out so many new, they're unlocking so much land at the same time because they need the housing. And then the final thing on that was, which I thought was interesting is they're doing a lot of lotteries for housing in China in terms of trying to get people into the market. There's so much demand that they basically just have to go into a lottery and then they get picked uh, randomly. They have to kind of decide there and then which, which apartment they want if they're, they're successful in the lottery. So I think there's still a lot of underlying demand. I think it's um, slightly different. I, I mean, For me, as a takeaway from this as an investor, it's not that I'm anti-China. It's just that I don't need to invest there directly, and I don't need to invest in property development or anything that's really associated with that. So that's kind of, we come back to the point on tapering before. You can protect yourself and your portfolio for the long term, I think, pretty reasonably. Sure, you'll have volatility, but you can protect yourself pretty well just by being sensible in what you own and why you own it. That's my kind of takeaway. and in Lovely. the short term, yeah, I'm happy to be guided by um, kind of the, the others that, that do actively invest in China and monitor the situation very closely. Um, there's one more thing that we wanted to talk about before we get to the reasons why we sell positions, and the, one of those is um, Facebook CTO leaving, been at the company 13 years, being replaced by another CTO who has plenty of experience too. So I don't know what you made of this. I own Facebook shares I'm not too worried to be honest, but um, you may have a different perspective. I know we kind of differ a little bit on Facebook. But... No,
2: I don't really. I mean,
1: hmm.
2: yeah, no, I don't know. I think like Facebook is, is a, I, I own it. I used to own it. Um, I don't own it anymore. I, mean, I have maybe, uh, as I say, having moral issues with companies is not a good idea. Uh, it's not good for investment. <laughs> uh, but uh, that is, a, I think it's what I actually thought was interesting about this move is the person taking over is actually the person who's responsible for hardware. So this is a software company, uh basically an advertising company, if you think about it, that is putting somebody who is um hardware focused in charge of the as as chief technology officer. So I don't know what I can take away from that. You no. Know, um, why not put somebody who's responsible for your ad business, somebody who's responsible for something else? Uh, in charge instead. So I th- I thought that was, you know, maybe they're, it's just a messaging that they're trying to do that, uh, you know, maybe AR and VR and all those things around Oculus is, um, is important. And maybe that's the messaging here, um, you know, or metaverse or whatever um, uh, Zuckerberg likes to call it. Um, so I thought that part was interesting. People leave for all sorts of reasons. 13 years is a long time, right? I mean, Thirteen years at a fast-growing company is going to suck blood out of you. So, it's, and you know, and if you're not the founder, I, there's every reason for you to leave. Mm.
1: I think um, when he joined, it had a fifteen billion-dollar market or valuation at Facebook, and now it's over a trillion. So, I mean, I think one of the comments that I saw was that you know, maybe it's because moving into a part-time role, which is when I think when a lot of key stakeholders remove themselves from businesses, that's kind of the politically correct way, and right way to do it by long-term shareholders but um he's probably you know made a lot of money like you said he's kind of invested a lot and now it's time for him just to move on Um, and that's fair and when you pay when you're a company like facebook you can afford to pay engineers um you know very very generous salaries and not only that you can pay many of them so it's not (laughs) just paying one or two you can get a lot of them and so yeah. you have yeah. a lot on the bench when when mm-hmm. one wants to come off wants to be substituted off you can yeah. um you can do that so we just had some comments on the live thread here julian said um my ears have been enjoying your new microphone doc so that's ah. interesting <laughs> okay
2: okay all right
1: lockon <laughs> says so basically evergreen is a Ponzi scheme, question mark?
2: Uh, Um, uh, We could say the same thing about Australian property too. It's a pyramid. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Every
2: every property investment ultimately is a pyramid. (laughs) If the property is going up, you can think of it as a pyramid. Okay, now now watch the haters come by. <laughs> so here's an acknowledgement about uh, um, the the microphone here, right? This microphone was kindly provided by Owen uh, of Rask fame. And I actually love it because it actually gives a good voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually don't. And I, I've actually got mine up there. I should probably get it out. I've been a sucker for these AirPods for a while. Um, but then we got some more comments here. So we've got, oh, and by the way, Road, Road is the microphone, like that wonderful Australian business. Um, Josh says Ashmore, BlackRock, UBS, and HSBC own around $1.3 billion of Evergrande bonds, according to Bloomberg. So there's US exposure to this, hence the idea of contagion. Yeah, which is fair. Um, yeah. a lot of the debt is denominated in US dollars. So, um, that's a, that's a risk too, right? With, with when you have, um, emerging market currencies and you have the volatility in the currency.
2: Yeah. Pretty pretty. yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the uh, you know, the bond market is, and the, the thing that people forget is the bond market is what, like, you know, 10 times the size of the stock market. So the bond market is huge and that's how sort of stuff can flow over. But, but again, yeah, $300 billion of debt overall in the grand scheme of things where we have trillions and hundreds of trillions of dollars of debt. It's probably small, but yeah, but that is, that's a good point.
1: Agreed. Mm. Julian, And then commented again and says, Facebook is undoubtedly a great business, but has ick factor for me, which is probably what I think you've talked about this in the past, too. And I think that's something that a lot of people have commented on. You know, there's been some big things over the years with privacy, Cambridge Analytica, um, many different things over the years that have kind of called into question Facebook's ambitions, including its own cryptocurrency. So I think that's my
2: thing. My thing with Facebook is, you know, like the fact that it's a trillion dollar business, which is basically an app, is what makes me worry. Because if the app ecosystem is to shift, right, yeah. you know, uh, various regular that are trying to break the ecosystem. That is actually bad. It's just equally bad for the owners of the ecosystem as it is bad for an app itself, right? Um, so that's sort of what I, you know, it doesn't control the, I guess, it doesn't have layers that it can control. So it's trying to do that with Oculus and things like that. I don't know how successful it would be. People, it's a very difficult uh, transition for a company which sells stuff for free. Or let me put this in air quotes free uh, and then get them to buy hardware from you, which is not free because uh, they're not used to buying stuff for free. So <laughs> uh, but not used to paying for stuff, right? So that's that's the, yeah, I think that that's been my thing. I've been you know wrong about it, but from where I sold, I think Facebook has doubled um but yeah that's okay
1: don't um don't take your uh confirmation bias from price or your signals oh, from price yeah i, yeah, have, to. I have to i
2: have that's the only that's <laughs> the only way i'm going to feel regret <laughs> otherwise yeah. i have no regret about it
1: <laughs> and i think i think that's fair too like another criticism is obviously like the shift away from the facebook.com app and messenger towards uh whatsapp and instagram and it not being as kind of not necessarily transparent but as obvious how those businesses are going and kind of the big picture opportunities there, but um, yeah, it's it, they're all fair criticisms. Um, Henry just did say, get the mic out. Oh, and your voice has been a little scratchy lately. Well, I've got the mic out. Unfortunately, I can't connect it to a live chat, but I will next week, Henry. So thanks for the thanks for the nudge. Um, okay, mate, so wonderful. Let's move on to um, some of the key talking points. So we've got a couple more which we'll cover off briefly. Um, it's basically this question around when do you sell a position? Because we talk a lot about um, buying companies, exciting companies. Um, we talk about you know all these different things um, around kind of the entry, maybe even the holding. But we don't talk much about when to exit. And I'm really keen. I know you penciled um, something or penned something, I should say, um, for Seven investing on this. So maybe you can just share a bit of that with us.
2: Yeah. So my, my article, and actually all the articles of my colleagues, they're all uh, they're not behind the paywall. So they're the public facing, so you can actually access them. Um, each person has their own take. So uh, my take on selling is I sell, basically my selling is driven by I need the money, right? And that's really the only driver really behind. So it's not that I am actively looking at my positions. I'm not doing active management. I call my selling reactive. Um, I need the funds because I probably want to invest in something or I need the funds to you know, maybe you know, pay down for a house deposit or something like that. But usually I only invest stuff in the market that I don't need for a long, long time. So typically it would mean one of those things, some, there's some rare event has happened that means I need cash or that there's another company that I really like that I want to buy, but I don't have funds to buy or I've got a small position and I can't increase my position. Problem is, I actually detest making this move of selling something and buying something because I need to now get two decisions right, mm-hmm. and um, I really, really detest. I try to keep that to, and I remind myself that every time you do that, your chance of being overall correct actually goes down uh, because you're making two back-to-back decisions, right? So fifty percent probability of getting right, then you're effective if you think of them as independent bets, then you're, they become like you know twenty-five percent probability of getting them. Both right, um, which basically reduces the chance of being correct. Um, so, I, but that's probably my number one reason to sell is I need the cash. And then what I do really is I just look at, and because I keep track of what my businesses are doing, I basically look at the one that is the weakest I don't like, or have small positions that I had taken. They call it my position so that I'm going to watch it and I never really added to it. Those are the ones that go or uh, businesses that I have not followed closely, and I am not really keen on it. So basically, it's stuff that I'm not interested in the ones other, the first ones to go. Above that would be businesses that I've held for many years that are underperforming. And I'm, again, very hesitant to sell them, because unless there's really good reason, sometimes businesses underperform stock price-wise, as you said, don't take a cue from the stock price for a long time, uh, and then can outperform. Sometimes businesses have execution issues that, you know, roll on for several quarters and then sort of fix themselves because they have good management teams. So it's just hard, but yeah. So, but I would have an order where, you know, I'll start, I'll, I'll call my speculative positions first, then I'll call uh, businesses I'm not interested in. So like, you know, Facebook would be in that care. I'm not interested in following Facebook. So that's a good business for me to actually get rid of from my portfolio. That doesn't mean that it's not going to do well, but, you know, it's it's just something that I'm not really interested in. So that's another one. Uh, to consider. Um, and, and then, of course, businesses that might be you know, struggling on other ones, uh, the other one to consider. So that's sort of my self-philosophy. It's not much of a philosophy. It's just it's, it, the only key thing I take away is reactive. It's not proactive. So I'm not proactively managing my portfolio.
1: It's interesting that you say, I've never heard that before around companies that you actually want to follow. Like I don't really, I've never really heard anyone articulate that in, in, in a way that says, I sell positions if I just know I'm no longer like that's where my, not what I want to do, it's not what I want to follow. Like Facebook is a really interesting example. Um, I've got one more question for you, but I just want to call out this tweet because I wrote about this not too long ago for our Brass Invest Service. And was uh, a tweet from Joe Mega, and it comes from um, a Bank of America um, manager survey. And the tweet was, and Joe's got the screenshot, what best describes your investment time horizon at this moment? And the weighted average time horizon was um 7.4 months. But um I think a few of them um only had uh so no sorry so here we go yeah so the weighted average was 7.4 months um of those surveyed 47 said they hold stocks for on average less than three months and six pe- six fund managers responded and said we don't know what our time horizon is. <laughs> um, That's funny. So so it's it's a really interesting one because Um, yeah I mean what it means is we take the median there 7.4 months it's effectively saying when fund managers and the professionals that we pay or some people pay are investing only six months or seven months ahead of time there's a time arbitrage there effectively and a behavioral arbitrage and that just comes back to what we know about being individual investors we don't have constraints like window dressing showing up for the quarterly reviews um, doing the webinars and all that sort of stuff we can kind of run our own race which is why you're Comment was really interesting, but one question I have for you is: I was reading your article, and one thing that people tend to do is they tend to curate their portfolio, so they are they are more active. And you've said here that you know some people sell because a position is air quotes too large. And you said your largest position is twenty five percent of the entire stock portfolio, and you're okay with that. But some people wouldn't be. It, and you said it's like a personal decision. How would, at what level would it become uncomfortable for you?
2: Yeah so, like, yeah, so the, the largest position is Tesla. And, you know, like, it's, I think it's, yeah, investing is very personal, right? I mean, I feel I sold some when we, you know, bought this house. I sold some to pay the deposit and I felt very good about it. And I almost thought I should name the house Musk. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but uh, look, I think it's okay. Like, I understand that company and I'm fine with it. I understand the volatility that comes with it but i get it i get what they're doing right which is which is again this you know this point that you made about so i'm okay with that an active manager would would look at 10% position and then have to call because you know you can't go back to your clients and say oh, i've got a 20% position but an individual investor can as long as they understand right uh, most people would say that you know you know 15% probably is is a lot and um yeah but i feel com- as long as i feel comfortable about it it's okay it's uh you know -hmm. It's fine, and the it here's the thing though, right? What I do is I let positions organically grow. So like you know, I've in the only time I've sold is I think last year, and you know, a lot. Yeah, last year when when we were looking to buy the house, I sold some. None of us have. I have never sold, right? And so my time horizon is not that seven months. You know, my time horizon is eight years, ten years. You know, my positions are that long. Mm I just let the compounding do the thing for me and I just wait <laughs> because, you know, if, if a 10 bagger doubles, that's a 20 bagger, <laughs> right? Mm. That's, that's where the magic happens, right? And as I, I tell everyone that, you know, in the first five years, you don't notice it. Between the year five and year ten is when you start noticing things, and then from year ten onwards, it's magic. (laughs) Mm. Because you could just be sitting on your bum doing nothing, and every you know year, you could be making five years worth of like salary (laughs) because of the magic of compounding. So Mm. uh, compounding is magical. You just have to let it happen, (laughs) which is what you were you know the point you were making is that you know that's the biggest advantage we as individual investors have right so
1: yeah uh, if you can if you can find see I, i don't have any study to back this up but basically my belief is that if you can find companies that have very high rates of returns on invested capital eventually your portfolio you know not it won't happen immediately and it will not be in a straight line but over say 10 years eventually your returns should come close to mirroring Kind of the, the com- ongoing compounding of that business provided that you know everything else this is that old is it uh satiris paraby, that economic theory i don't know how to pronounce that correctly but basically holding all other things equal or the same <laughs> what would happen which you know that never happens in reality but if they if they were the same if your business is constantly compounding and growing its capital eventually people will ha- you know pay a higher price for that because the earnings will go higher the dividends will go higher the revenue will go higher and so that is basically where i kind of put my yardstick if i can buy companies that are compounding at 20 30 40% a year i'm sure that's before tax then eventually my returns should be double digit as well but it takes a long time to recognize that and i think that's the key thing that many most investors miss is you have to give it time otherwise that doesn't work um so the, i mean you can still make money but investing in sentiment you know stretching valuations we've seen a lot of that in the last 10 years but um yeah i I think that's fair and reasonable um i've got so i did a piece on this recently 10 reasons that investors sell so not 10 reasons that i sell but 10 reasons investors sell and rather than go like there's like intrinsic valuation opportunity cost all that sort of stuff tax purposes some you know how many times have we had ceos say they need to sell this their stock for tax purposes Mm -hmm. um then there's obviously like the fear and greed element um Many people use things like a director selling down as a signal to sell. Um, Basically, some people just hit a goal, like a retirement goal. Um, But the two that I want to call out is probably the two that make the most sense to me. They're kind of like my truths. And um, the first one is that it's being more prescriptive. So this comes from basically the financial planning side of me, which is many people aren't deliberate when they invest they are kind of that they think about investing as a way to collect assets so i wrote about this recently as people being collectors they just kind of collect shares they collect properties they collect bars of gold but whatever paintings whatever you're into and that is that works because you're collecting assets as long as you're collecting assets that go up in value you're going to have more money that's a pretty simple thing and i think for beginners where beginner investors definitely overthink it. So just getting started is basically the best advice for them, for sure. But over time, as your portfolio grows, um, and maybe if you're not a professional investor like we are, maybe the best thing for you is to have a plan that says, I'm going to invest X amount of money in the stock market, X amount of money outside of the stock market. And then if things go beyond that range, like reasonably, say 10% beyond my allocation to, to the stock market, then I might consider trimming my lowest conviction positions and rebalancing. So I think what most or many studies show, so there's one from Vanguard, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it actually shows that the strategic asset allocation piece around an entire portfolio, so not just stocks, I think about 90% from a like an indexed portfolio um 90% of the um, returns are basically explained by strategic asset allocation. So not tactical short-term moves, but longer term decisions like how much bonds, how much shares. Um, so I think that's a valid point to make. If you are going to sell, you may have a plan in place to sell. And that discipline might actually work for you. And you know, it could be as simple as, I only want 20 positions in my portfolio because that's intellectually, that's all I can handle. I've done some research. That's fine. So that's a, that's a plan as well. The other thing is, and I think this applies to anything that we buy, not necessarily just shares or whatever. It's actually just having a thesis, just a, something that you've written down. Um, and if it's well-rounded, you can rely on that in the future. It's basically, why am I owning something? And if that why is no longer true, you know, if it's Tesla, I think it's going to you know captivate the world with electric vehicles, so autonomous vehicles. And we're going to, most people are going to have power walls on the wall. If that doesn't happen, if that's not happening for one or two years in a row, that would be an example of maybe then you start to question that thesis. And so you and I are very fortunate, mate, because we get to write down our theses. You know, we get, we have to, it's our job. <laughs> but um, a lot of people don't do that. So I think as a discipline, that's a really important thing to get in the habit of. And then um you know, we get, I, I'm rambled, but basically on top of that, you get the Feynman technique. And if you write it down, you poke holes in your own work and you go back to the drawing board and et cetera, et cetera. So thesis break and I guess the top-down portfolio constraints are, I think, valid reasons to sell. That's kind of my philosophy on it. I love
2: Julian. That. Uh, I was going to say that, you know, um, journaling is a great idea. That's what Owen just suggested. You know, you should, you know, you actually, you'd be amazed how much journaling helps,
1: so. Julian says, um, "I like Doc's approach of thinking about portfolio percentage in terms of percentage of capital outlayed, then letting them run. That's cool. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that's, that's just to highlight that what I do is I have a set of amount of capital that I have personally put the cash. I I try not to put more than five percent in any company, and then let let them run.
1: Yeah, right. So would you, if you had five percent to put in a company, would you put five percent in?" one go, or would you kind of do that every month? Or how do you think? So what I do,
2: I so I have a running tally of how much cash I have put into my brokerage accounts, right? And I would not put more than five percent of that amount into any position. <laughs> that sort of like.
1: So you're saying over the, the lifetime of you putting money in, or just yeah recently? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Right. So it's like you know, I don't want to put more than five percent of the total, right? So if it's hundred k, then five percent of that is that's how much. A position is going to get capital from me, and then I can let it run, right? And it can keep running forever, if you know. Um, and that can become large or small. That's okay. It's just another way of saying that you know this is the my hard earned money, and that's how much you're going to get. Now go do something with it.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah, fair enough. So, whereas, you, so would you say that some people who are doing it from the perspective of total value of the portfolio, maybe that's not necessarily the yeah. You know, maybe that's a different so- way to think about it
2: that's a different way i'm not saying anything is wrong right other problem is, as you said right i think there's a whole there's a whole portfolio there's like an entire like course on portfolio management mm. right you can go to, you, you know if you go to the cfa curriculum i guess you'd you know you'd get it you'd have like an entire module on that i've never read that module i don't understand that module <laughs> <laughs> I'm openly saying I don't care about that module. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. So my module is, well, I've just put stuff into companies I like. I want to keep money in companies I follow. And I don't look at my positions and say, oh, I should be 5% or 8%. Should, you know, it's 5%. Okay, 5%. That's fine. It's 10%. Okay, it's 10%. And it's very laid back. And as I said, I think, I think the point you made is effectively, nothing is going to matter that much if you take if you just expand the horizon, right? And now, could I have done better than what I've done? Maybe. But you know what? I'm happy with what I've done because my threshold in my family is if I can get 15% per annum, that's great. And we're not even comparing with the market, just 15% per annum because that's like doubling every five years. That's a lot. And if I can do more than that, great. But 15% is, is good. So again, I think that's where it becomes very personal, right? I mean, That works for us and we're happy with it.
1: Mm.
2: Why complicate life?
1: Yeah. And I, I, yeah. So just to confirm though, just to confirm here, you've never calculated the efficient frontier of your portfolio.
2: I have no idea what even that means.
1: How about- uh, <laughs> Okay, so I I, the only
2: thing I only thing I look at is how much my different portfolios are giving me returns on a one-year, three-year, five-year, and long-term basis. That's the only thing I look at. Or as my father would say, the only thing I look at is the total value, which is actually my, my father has got it right. You know, age uh-huh. does help you. So I look at how much money I've put in, then I look at how much money I have. And everything in the middle does not matter. <laughs> because what really matters is how much you've got how much you put in and that's really the end result and i'm in, i'm with my father here uh, so that's what i look at so he's just looking at returns is what i do look at
1: yeah um, i can tell you the cfa curriculum around portfolio management it's not that much fun so um you're not missing out on a lot by by not reading it like it's uh sure you know you gotta know the rules of the game before you can play it but um Yeah, I mean, you can probably spend your weekend doing something else, uh, in my opinion. Um, But yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think, again, this comes back to knowing the difference between being a private investor and being someone that is a financial advisor or even a fund manager. I think a lot of us, and I, I constantly remind our team of this, is, you know, just because a fund manager writes in their letter that they sold a position, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for us. They might say that they sold it on valuation grounds, but they could have sold it for many other reasons, and that's just what they're telling you.
2: And it doesn't mean that the valuation is correct.
1: That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, and one of the wonderful things of being, um, you know, being an expert in a field is that you can say things, and your clients think, oh, that sounds rational. They seem to know what they're doing, even in difficult situations, which in some instances would, probably just be smoke and mirrors and so um it's important that you make your own decision you you are comfortable in that and not necessarily let others guide you because if you do that you'll end up with a median holding period of 7.4 months or less probably so um which is probably as both of us were just saying is probably not where you want to be for your long-term wealth creation so Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I really enjoy this conversation of um, when Selma. I know we've got one more topic, but we're already at 59 minutes. So uh, I don't know I what mean, you want
2: to do. We should keep that topic for next time. But we should, let's do okay, a little teaser gonna... saying what that topic is about, because that's a very interesting okay. topic as well. Go for so this. I'll let you do that. No, no, oh,
0: no, you... no, no. no, no, no.
2: <laughs> I want you, you want to do the, the t-
0: teaser. T- yep. Okay. <laughs> so so we, we we alluded to this topic um, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Basically, when
1: you have really fast growing industries, really valuable and important industries, you know, that could be around for decades to come, how do you identify one winner or multiple winners in that industry as early as you can? And so that's basically what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to give you a framework of how to do those things, how to use what you know to make good security selections or individual stocks, but also how do you build the portfolio around that? So. All that and more coming up on next week's Australian Investors Podcast. How's that for a teaser?
2: That is brilliant. And here's the thing. This is all free stuff, right? Yes, this yes, is all free. Is all okay, free. Owen, one thing we didn't do is we didn't tell people how they can get hold of us. So yes. I'm going to be honors. You can find Owen on Twitter at Owen Rask. Um uh, with the O capital and R capital. I don't know whether it makes a difference or not. Does make it a make company. a
1: difference? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, but that's why I
2: said O capital and the R <laughs> capital. Um, come and talk to us on Twitter. Give us ideas. We love, and, you know, have questions, uh, you know, send them to us. We we, we love t- chatting with people. Um, mine is at 7amahanti. Um, you want to point them to something that's been happening in the RASC world where they can find the RASC uh, content, how they can access it.
1: Yeah, sure. So you can head to www.rasc.com.au forward slash subscriptions if you want to um, see what we write about, see what the Rask analyst team puts behind the paywall, which is stock recommendations and uh, podcasts and, and a few other things that we put in there, including, you know, reports and, and guides. And we actually released one last week, which was um, an investment portfolio guide. So basically it's like a 15 page checklist for you to self-assess your plan and your goals for long-term wealth creation from the stock market and how you are going to go about doing that? So that's pretty cool too. Uh, that's behind the paywall though. Um, how about you, mate? Can they go to seveninvesting.com and find or out If I subscribe,
2: more? yeah. And you know, subscribe. So here's the, if you subscribe, you get what's behind the paywall. If you don't subscribe, we have lots of podcasts and articles, like the ones, the selling articles in each one of my colleagues. So we have 7 Advisors and 7 Investing. You can find each one's, um, how they handle selling, uh, we put these articles out. It's just, just general, you know, um, articles for people to read. Lots of podcasts and and mm. uh, and things that we do uh, out there. Um, yeah, and if you want to look, you know, our recs come out on the first of October. Uh, there'll be seven recs out. I'm quite excited about my own rec. Uh, I think it's 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 a very interesting. And I've found another small fast growing company which is profitable. Uh, what are I the chances? This. And the chance are very low, but yeah, I've, I've been actually profitable. looking.
1: Profitable.
2: Uh, profitable. It actually has net income. <laughs> so, so I, I love those when I find them. They say, oh, okay, there's net income here. That is pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a small, fast growing company. If you're interested, uh, in then that, that's going to be behind the paywall. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll do a shout out. Actually, what Owen manages a, a team of really crack Alice. And some of them are really young, but they are smart and they're really cool. So, yeah, check out what they're doing. Um, thank you, and man. I, and likewise. Yeah, and I, I like some of them. Some of them, I, I have. I at least had the pleasure of working with at least one of them. And, 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 and she was a crack analyst. <laughs> uh, uh, re- I'm re- sure really she appreciates
1: that. Yeah. So, so we'll not,
2: not, not put her name out because we haven't taken permission from her to uh, put her <laughs> name out. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. that's
1: it. That's it. Wonderful. Always, mate. Always a pleasure. So thank you for for joining me and I'm looking forward to doing this next week.
2: Yes, same here.
0: For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing.